I've not had the opportunity to meet you before. My name is Wayne. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're very glad you're with us today. To everybody in the East Auditorium, we're very glad you're with us as well. The people in Lovington, thanks for joining us in worship, and the people online, we're very glad as well that we get to look at Scripture together today. I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Ezekiel, an Old Testament passage, and uh, it's, uh, we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 4, if you will, today, please. And the reason that um, we started with worship today is because the passage of Scripture we're looking at today clearly has its roots in worship. It's about Ezekiel. He has a very difficult task. He has to bring strong words of rebuke to his nation. And the only way that he feels he can manage that with any effectiveness is to start with God. He, um, he says, I'll be in God's presence and I'll be in worship. And in fact, Throughout the book of Ezekiel, there's this point where he, um, he gets in God's presence and he's, he sees things he can't fully describe and he's often overwhelmed. And he, he writes this a number of times along this line. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He said, uh, being in God's presence is obviously God is there. And when I saw it, he says, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. And he's experiencing the presence of God. And God's glory to him is absolutely overwhelming. And his automatic response is, um, well, I've got to do something that shows I'm in humility before God. And he worships God. He falls face down. And so we've worshiped God this morning. We said, Lord, we cry holy and, and we bow ourselves before you. And now, in light of that, we'll do what Ezekiel did. He asked God, what should I do? How should I respond to being in your presence? And he learns, in his case... He has to bring a, bring a rebuke to his nation. So how does that apply to us? We'll see if we can deal with that a little bit today. In order to set the stage, I want you to take a look at a photo here. It shows a group of islands that have... Um, if you notice, there's some resemblance to the, world's, to the world. Like, can you see North and South America there on the left? And you see Africa and Asia. Australia looks really strange. I don't know how that happened. But these, these are islands in a high-end resort off the coast, three miles off the coast of Dubai. It's a project in which 34 billion metric tons of rock and 320 million cubic uh, meters of sand were dumped into the ocean to create these artificial islands, if you will. <laughs> it's to be a place where the world's finest cities are being recreated. And in this place that we are told, you can go there because the sun will always shine, the ocean is always warm, and the white sands are never far away. And what they are doing on these islands that are built to look like the shape of the world, if you will, you can go and live in or visit cities of, that are like Venice. There's a, they're going to recreate Venice. They're going to recreate St. Petersburg or Stockholm, cities from Germany, Switzerland, and so forth. And if you have a, enough money... You can go there for a vacation, or in fact, they are suggesting that the uber-wealthy should just go there and live. Now, it's been under construction since 2003. It's promoted as a utopian place, and if you have enough money, you can escape the chaos of the rest of the world and simply exist there in peace. I want to go, what, are there only going to be two people there? Because you get a bunch of people there, there's going to be problems, right? I mean, I'd suggest the places where we live and work, the places that, you know, the stories that we watch on our screens, uh, the, the history that we read in our books, would all indicate that 
peace is a great single moment. You know, you can go lay on the beach for a few hours and say, okay, this is absolutely peaceful. However, we also live through other moments in our lives, and we watch other people who have long moments in their lives where peace is not the story. Instead, the byline is their life, chaos. My life at this moment, chaos. And that's certainly the setting of Ezekiel. Some 2,600 years ago, a young guy, he was 30 years old when this occurred to him, a young guy named Ezekiel found himself living in a place of chaos. He had been in Jerusalem. He was forced marched from Jerusalem by the Babylonians to Babylonia. And he was living as a Jewish exile and refugee in Babylon. And while in Babylon, he has these experiences with God where he experiences God's presence. He gets himself face down before God on a position of humility before God and others. He's flat on his face and he learns while he's there flat on his face, that he has to speak into the chaos around him. And the words that he spoke to his nation were very tough. They were tough. They were hard. They were awkward. In fact, he discovered that the exile, all of his peers living in exile as refugees, they are living there as a direct result of his nation's actions. The people of God people of Judah had been under God's protection and blessing and had got to experience that, but they wandered away from that. And now he has to speak into that chaos. They've sinned. The exile is a direct result of bad behavior. As a matter of fact, we're going to discover very bad behavior today, very bad and distressing behavior. And God expected Ezekiel to speak to the chaos with a specific rebuke. He was to rebuke the nation, and then he was after that to call the nation to repentance into new ways. And if you'll read with me, this is how, after he's in the presence of God, in chapter 4, we begin to see what he's supposed to do and what he's supposed to say. Chapter 4, verse 4, he's coming out of the presence of God, and we read this. Lie on your left side and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, so it's depicting how many years? 390 years, right? You will bear the sin of the people of Israel. Now, I want you to be careful. Don't assume they had to just lay on his side for 390 days and thus all his muscles would atrophy or anything like that. No, he's supposed to lay on his side and draw attention to the fact that he's laying on his side. And there was a specific way that God then says, beginning in verse uh, 9, that he's supposed to expose the sin of the people and, and get them to realize what's going on. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. So he's getting up. He's not trying to make the bread while laying on his side, okay? It's, he can move around and he's doing his thing and so he's, he's going to make some bread and you are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times. Everybody's supposed to know your routine, what you're doing, and that you are doing this in, in direct, um, a direct word from me, as God is saying, and people are to pay attention. Also, verse 11, me measure out a sixth of hint of water, drink it at set times, eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread, and then... This is the instruction that really caught, catches everyone's attention. Bake it in the side of the people using human excrement for fuel. What? What? Fueling the fire with human waste 
was direct, it was ugly, it was, oh. Yet God wanted the people to realize they'd had ingested life approaches and life uh, ways of just life across the board. They were ugly and evil and contaminated. And here's this guy, Ezekiel, has to demonstrate it this way. Because here they were, Jewish, the Jewish nation, they were Jews set apart by God for God. There to be an intimate expression of how humans and God could relate to each other in perfect relationship. Yet the nation had rejected God and stepped into sin. And in response, God says, when you get to chapter 5, I'm against you. I'm going to inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nation. Why? Because of your detestable idols. I'm going to do to you what I have ne never done before and will never do again. And the result of all that is chaos. I mean, God, they've walked away from God's hand of protection. The Babylonians come in and they are in trouble. They're, I mean, they are fearing for their lives. People are dying. People are being forced marched to Babylon. Later in chapter 7, we read about those. It's going to be on the screens because what I've done is I've put together a compilation of some of, the, some of the things that happened. And the best way to say is that fear is going to rule the day. Just look at how it was in Jerusalem as a result of all that took place. Let not the buyer rejoice nor the seller grieve. The seller will not recover the property that was sold for the vision concerning the whole crowd will not be reversed. Economic ruin. Why? So many people have been carted off that property values have dropped. You have no way to recoup your money. Your, the, your portfolio is destroyed, in other words. <clears throat> Outside the city is, is the sword. Inside are plague and famine. The famine inside the city was so bad and in the areas around Jerusalem that they actually resorted to cannibalism. And with that, you don't know who you can trust, right? Because you might be their next meal. Imagine living like that, looking over your shoulder the whole time. Those in the country will die by the sword. Those in the city will be de devoured by famine and plague. I mean, the Babylonians have come in. They've murdered a bunch of people. They've carted off the leader. It's an awful place. Every hand will go limp. Every leg will be wet with urine. Your fear will be so bad that there will be moments when your bladder is going to give way. They'll be clothed with terror. Chaos ruled the day. Their actions brought the chaos. And the result is this. God says, because you walked away from me and because without my protection, all these things happen to the point where your bladder isn't working in fear. God says, I will deal with you according to their own conduct. I will deal with them, pardon me, according to their own conduct and by their standards. In other words, the way in which they're treating people is how they're going to get treated. Then they will know that I am the Lord. It's a horrific picture of chaos. And the overall response? Ezekiel is calling his nation to repentance. He's calling them to a new lifestyle saying, our behavior got us in this mess. And let's return to God's way of life. It's a message of repentance. Let's say, we were going this way and it's not working. Let's go that way. Let's choose a new direction of life. <clears throat> now, we have to ask, does this have implications for us? Because we'd like to say, well, you know, Wayne, that was 2,600 years ago. Ezekiel was a special fellow and it's a nice 
ugly story, if you will, to look at, but well, can I remind you that we'd like to forego the implications, but that's not how the followers of Jesus Christ approach Scripture. If you say you belong to Jesus Christ today, then you, this is what the Scriptures say about us Christians, that we believe all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful. It should help us. It's useful for teaching. Oh, we like that. I'd like to know a few things. I'd like to know how to approach life better. It's useful rebuking. Well, I don't like rebuking. I don't bump people in my face. But apparently, Scripture's for rebuking, right? It's for correcting. Oh, correcting? You're going you're gonna to shape me up? It's for training in righteousness? I kind of like the teaching part, and I can sort of get to the correcting and training in righteousness part, but the rebuking business, can we skip that? But... If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you say all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the servant of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, if Ezekiel had to speak in language of repentance to his nation, then there must be times that this story is there. For us to look at. And there must be times when those of us who follow the Bible have to do the same. Who wants to rebuke somebody? I don't want to rebuke the nation, do I? But with humility, with a posture of we fall down, with a posture of flat on our faces before God and others, we must speak to what is right and wrong in our nation. And yes, even in the lives of those around us, we must address the chaos. And as we learned last week, that means that we have to run toward the mess. We, it'd be nice to go hide on some idyllic artificial island off the coast of Dubai where the sun always shines and the sand is always white. But I don't live there. And besides which, it's an artificial existence. The warm sun might feel good for a few hours, but it will not erase the chaos and the sin. So how do we deal with this? How do we say, okay, I may have to say something that's really awkward. Well, you have, we have to start with humility, right? That face-down business. It begins with a deep personal look inside our own lives. You know, Jesus had a lot to say about this. Uh, Brian, can you pass me that water, please, bud? Uh, the, uh, he, Jesus had a lot to say about this. He once complained about religious people. Thanks, mate. He complained about religious people like you and me, the do-gooders. The ones who gather for worship and say, I've been in worship this week and I've kind of got my soul settled with God. He liked us kind of people, but he also called us to challenge because he, he once said, you know, be careful that you just don't look at the outside of the mug or the, he says, don't wash just the outside of the cup, but wash the inside as well. And I, I have a question. Do you have a, do you have a, in your kitchen, do you have a cupboard where you open up the cupboard and there's all the mugs there that you might use for coffee? And they've been through the dishwasher and you've cleaned them and you look at them and you go, oh, they're lovely and clean. And then you pull one out and you go, oof, what happened to that mug? How many times have I used coffee in this mug before I really cleaned it? You know, those coffee stains are deep down there. How did that happen? And how do I get them out? Jesus said, don't just be good looking on the, in the cupboard. Don't just look really nice sitting in church. But how are you on the inside? Jesus expected his followers to speak to the chaos. But when we use words, we are to live in humility and personal repentance. If you need some more information about that, may I suggest you go online 
and uh, check out last week's message. I would help you. And also, I want to remind you, just like we did last week, Pastor Jonathan has graciously prepared a five-day self-guided study that will examine today's topic, uh, Ezekiel chapter 4 through 7. We started last week, 1 through 3. We put out a study guide for that. There's a study guide available for 4 through 7 this week. You can get it by being part of our text service. Text the word First Decatur to two. Uh, the number is 24587. We had more than 1,000 people receive it last week. And if you'd like to get that, it's not going to bother me if you get out your phone right now and say, sign me up. All right. In addition to that, there are paper copies available at the welcome desk of the East Auditorium, the West Auditorium, and those in Lovington. There are paper copies available for you as well. And what are you going to discover as you read this week? As you say, man, I'm going to be a person of humility, saying, am I clean on the inside as well as the outside? What implications of repentance can we learn for ourselves and for others from Ezekiel? Well, in the days of Ezekiel, here it is. It's all about the primary sin of the people. They failed to acknowledge God. They took on lifestyles and thought patterns of nations around them. Frank, frankly, they lived secular lives with no regard for God's life approaches. Here they were, the Jewish nation. They were a theocracy where God was in charge, and they just walked away from it. Does that apply to our nation? Well, in that regard, I must say, we would say that we are a nation that has been blessed by God, protected by God. But if we wandered away, I tell you, I fear for our nation. The national mood at present is full of so much vitriol and anger. And that disorder, that I think we all recognize, that disorder is a direct result of our nation's disregard for Scripture's life's approaches. My sense is that you know, we're, at a, we're, we're really at a crossroads as a nation. We're going to have to deal with this anger and all this stuff that's going on. And we're on the verge of either great days or we're going to step into even worse days. And my observation is this. Sadly, I see no one with the nation's ear, no one with the nation's ear at present, who can call us to better behavior and thinking. And if we don't get better behavior and better thinking that's more in line with the Word of God, we're going to have worse days ahead. There's no, there's no doubt about it. So Christians, we must pray. Can I give you one reason why I fear for the days ahead? I'll, I'll, I'll explain it this way. The setting of Ezekiel is 2,600 years ago. It starts in Jerusalem, ends up in Babylon. But the, it's, it's because of what the people of Jerusalem and the surrounding, you know, the villages all around, because of the way in which they lived. If you go to the ancient city of Jerusalem, as it is today, as it was then, it looks like this. It's, it's not quite a mile square. And it's got a little jut out like that, and it looks like that. That's Jerusalem, okay? In, in, the, in the southwest corner is the temple. So the Holy of Holies is right about there. It was. It's not now, but it was. You have about 20 minutes walk away from the south, toward the south, and towards the east. You have the Mount of Olives. Do you remember when Jesus went to pray with his disciples? He went to the Mount of Olives, right? It's about... 20 to 30 minutes, at the most 30, to walk from inside the temple all the way to the Mount of Olives. Down here, you have a well-known community here in our area of the, of the world. It's called Mount Zion. Mount Zion, locally here, I assume is named after that. Very religious people there. <laughs> What's interesting is that in between there, there's a, there's a valley that starts right here it goes that way, and, and this is all downhill, and then it's still downhill into here, so you've got a spot right here, and there's a valley that comes this way. 
You got the lowest point is right in front of the Mount of Olives. This valley you've read about in scripture is called the Kidron Valley. This valley on this side, on the eastern side of the city is called the Hinnom Valley. And if you want to walk from where you live, Mount Zion, or there would be homes in the ancient days and today on top of the Mount of Olives, if you want to walk from there to there, 30 minutes max. Or if you want to go from worship back to your house, 30 minutes walk. It's down the hill and up the hill either way. But when we say hill, can, can I suggest to you, we have the, when we say valley, we have this idea that, man, you, you, it's, it's like the, the lower Tennessee Valley. And, and it goes from, no, this is, this is a dip in the road. As a matter of fact, we live in flat Illinois, so we don't have dips around here. Well, I know a few people, but nonetheless, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, should I? But <laughs> do you know when you're traveling south on 121 from 36 and you're, you've left the Walmart area and the Rural King area and you're going down and you go down towards Mount Zion proper and you go around the curve, there's that little dip that you drive through. What is it about? Quarter of a mile long the dip, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's this. Just a dip in the road. Now, Leslie and I, in 2014, during my sabbatical, we went and stayed in Mount Zion. We stayed there for, for right at a month. And every day that we were at Mount Zion, we would end up in the old city. We'd usually walk from about here and come in the gate right here. It would take us 30, 35 minutes because we were going down, up, and all the way far into the city. And um, we'd walk through the Kidron Valley or you'd walk through from the, from the city into the Mount of Olives. And that whole area is a park right now. It's a short walk. Here's what the spot looks like today. But I want you to pay attention to what happened in that place um, years ago. In that short walk from the Holy of Holies, right outside the temple, you know what used to happen there in the Hinnom Valley to the east of the city? child sacrificed by fire. It was a practice that the Israelites imported from other nations. Moloch was the false god of the, Canaanite, of the Canaanites, and his worship required child sacrifice. And in the days leading up to Ezekiel's time, the people of Jerusalem practiced in that gruesome spectacle. Why? Why? Well, because it's what everybody does. It's what the other nations do. Do you know the word Hinnom, that valley to the east, H-I-N-N-O-M? It's where the Hebrew word Gehenna, with two N's in it, comes from. Gehenna, how do we translate that in English? Hell. When the biblical writers wanted to describe hell in a place of fire, in a place where the worst things happen, they used the word Gehenna, which actually comes from understanding of the valley of Hinnom. And the people participated with their children. It was a complete abomination in God's eyes, given Scripture's view of, very high view of the value of humans made in God's image and the indefensible nature of children. Friends, usually in a message, there's this point where you want to go, okay, now it's time for a little bit of lightness and a little bit of a story or some humor. There's no humor today. Because the exile took place because the people rejected God's way. 
and the ultimate symbol of their rejection of God's way was the sacrifice of their children. The scriptures offer a clear perspective on that matter. And so from exile, from the exile, Ezekiel calls the nation to repentance and he said, this chaos that we're living in, this wedding yourself in fear because of you don't know who to, you, if somebody comes at you, you don't know if you're going to live through it and your bladder gives away. That, all of that, this has come because you have a departure from God's way of life. And that, friends, is the book of Ezekiel. Again, let me say it this way. Ezekiel say, this chaos, you wetting yourself in fear, has come because you have a departure from God's way of life. And that is the book of Ezekiel. You know, each July, I step out of the pulpit for three or four weeks and take that regular sermon preparation time to think through and pray through what would God bring to our congregation in the coming year. So last July, I said, we're going to look at Ezekiel throughout the, book of, throughout the month of January for two or three weeks. And so this has been set in play for a long time. And then in the last few days, here in the U.S., we passed another anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And I wonder, man, how did that all come together in July that we end up in this place today? Friends, more than 600,000 abortions were performed in our nation last year in 2018. Across the world, worldwide, 41.94 million babies were aborted in 2018. More than those who died from cancer, from malaria, from HIV, AIDS, from smoking, from alcohol, and accident-related deaths combined. Almost 42 million children. And it sounds really familiar to Ezekiel. And they did this. They wanted away from God's protection through this practice and others. So I have some questions for us today. What should we do as a church? What should we do as individuals? And what should we do as a nation? We have to say, we must repent. We're going this way. And we've got to turn around and go the other way. We have to change our attitude, our actions, and our, world, our, our words. And so let me address those three areas. What should we do? Well, from First Christian Church's side, each year we send a significant amount of money to New Life Pregnancy Center. And a lot of people and people resources, volunteers and people in leadership over there, a lot of people. Last year we sent more than $17,000. In addition to that, we also each, the beginning of each year, hand out baby bottles, suggesting you put your spare change in it for a period of time and bring it back to the church and we'll send it over to um, New Life Pregnancy Center. And in those cases, we don't count the money. So it's not going through our books. It's going straight from there into the books of New Life Pregnancy Center. And we simply carry the bottles over to the center and say, here, here's what our church gave and beyond what we do as a leadership team and so forth. And last year, your gifts to this campaign we are just like four or five dollars shy of five thousand dollars. I got the report from New Life Pregnancy this week. Now each each year we usually close hand out about three hundred bottles. But as I was working again through Ezekiel's story this week and saw the connection to this business of child sacrifice, I called up the pregnancy center and said, "We need way more than three hundred bottles this year. We're going to make a dent. We're going to make a big dent. Send us six hundred bottles." And so as you leave worship today, here in the West, in the East, as you leave worship in, in Lovington, you're going to be 
given the opportunity to grab one of those. Here's why. Here's why I think we need to pay attention to this. Because the people of ancient Jerusalem, why did I say we, they, they walked from their homes in Mount Zion or top of the Mount of Olives you know, in the community above there? And they would walk from their homes down through the valley and up to worship. They would walk through the fire. They walked right through the place of child sacrifice on their way to worship. Oh God, we're going to be so holy. We're coming to worship you, and yet in the, but we're going to walk through the place of child sacrifice, or we're going to worship you, and then we're going to walk right back through the same place. And they did nothing. We drove, most of us, I would suspect, drove to this holy event called worship today. Maybe you drove from Marilla. Maybe you drove from Forsyth or Warrensburg or South Shores or right here in Decatur. Maybe you drove from Mount Zion or a community exactly like Mount Zion. And what are the places that we drove through? We drove through the places where people have made terrible decisions, very similar to the decisions that were made in Ezekiel. We've driven through the places of child sacrifice. And I'm telling you, as the pastor of this church, we will continue to do something about that. We will help those living in the places of an unwanted pregnancy. And get your bottle as you leave. And let's give a substantial amount together. Because our church, with your help, will make a difference. And that's our church, but what about you? I want to say, friend, if, you're, if you've come to the place in the past, or maybe this week, where you've experienced the trauma of abortion, or, or, or you're experiencing right now a pregnancy that you don't know what to do about, and you and your partner are stepping through the process of abortion, or you did it in the past, obviously I wish that was not the case. But I want to remind you this. The staff and the leadership teams of this church will gladly and gently lead you to a place of freedom and forgiveness and wholeness before God. Not pointing fingers, but saying together, can we bring this decision of the past or the one that's before you this week, can we bring it to God? We will talk with you. Grab, grab me by the sleeve today and say, I've got to deal with this today. It was, it was last year. It was 20 years ago. It was in 1974, right after Roe versus Wade, whatever the case. Can we have a conversation about that and bring it to God? Our church, our individual lives, and what about our nation? How could the U.S. repent? Well, we have to examine how we discuss this matter as a culture. We've got the question and the issue of abortion all centered on the wrong matter. We frame the matter within the context of a woman's choice, and we've accepted a lie, much like the people of ancient Jerusalem. Everybody does this. See, I know that Roe versus Wade is the law of the land. It may stand for years yet to come. But for the followers of Jesus Christ, while we might pay attention to the law, let's more so, much more so, let's focus on the choice for children. We should welcome and celebrate each life. I wish the, nation, the, the mood of the nation was so pro-children that, that common thinking and common culture would not promote abortion in any way, regardless of what the law says. I wish that young ladies and young men in, in relationships who face this decision. We're not married. We don't want to get married yet. We've got a baby or whatever the case. I wish that they knew that the Christians of this land are not so worried about how many picket signs we hold, but how much compassion, our level of compassion. Where do we stand there? 
We've accepted a lie thinking that the proper size of our family needs shrinking. May I remind you that scripture had no such injunction? Now, I'm not suggesting all couples have 10 children. Single. But let me say it this way. In no way are families of other faiths choosing to limit the size of their families. And there's a problem coming to us in future generations when our collective Christian voice is either going to be smothered or certainly softened greatly simply due to fewer young people coming from our homes. So, my suggestion, have children. Keep babies alive. Regardless of the marital situation, Today, if you're married or the right age, go home and make a baby. <laughs> I said we were, didn't have very much humor, but that's the only spot. For those of you who can't have children, what about foster care and adoption? What, again, can't we lead the charge on the voice of compassion? Finally, one more comment on this very heavy topic. Something that some would say is not politically correct. There's this discussion, I suppose, disagreement in the public forum today about our citizens' right or ability to say things like, God bless America. You're not supposed to pray in public forums these days, and if you do, you certainly should never pray in the name of Jesus. I mean, I've got an invitation to go pray at the legislature in Springfield in the coming weeks, and I'm debating I mean, there's pretty strong guidelines about what you're allowed to say and not say. And I'm going, do I really want to do that even? So are you, can you, are you allowed to say, God bless America in the public forum these days, which is in fact a prayer, right? To say that is considered in some circles politically incorrect. And then, so then we also have our arguments about whether or not our slogan should read, in God we trust. But I will tell you this, in light of the scourge of abortion in our land, some 60 million U.S. citizens have lost their lives since 1973. Did you catch that? 60 million babies have been aborted since 1973. And frankly, the fact that we've lost 60 million children, to me, negates any discussion of us being, saying, God bless America or in God we trust. Why? Why have, we, why have those babies lost their lives? Because we live in the valleys of Ginnem, in the communities across our nation, and babies are dying in every community. You know, Moloch was the false god of the Canaanites who required child sacrifice. And can I tell you, friends, he got a new altar in New York this week. Are you familiar with that story? Abortion now up until 40 weeks old in gestation. And yet we can keep babies alive at 24 weeks, but you can... And be careful, we, before we point fingers at New York, our own Ill, new Illinois governor has stated this week that he expects and wants Illinois to be the most progressive state in the union regarding abortion. And he said it with great fanfare, and I'm going, that's something to be proud of? Moloch has worshipers in the U.S. in 2019, and he's doing business as autonomy and choice. And then we as a nation dare say, God bless America. And I'm going to go, how arrogant! How arrogant, it's like we're going to be right up beside the Holy of Holies praying, and then we're going to walk through the valley and do nothing about it. We're not far from the scary comparison to the people of ancient Jerusalem, because we're walking through the valley of child sacrifice on our way to prayer, saying, oh, God bless America. 
How dare we? Perhaps a better prayer would simply say, God help us. God save us. God have mercy. God forgive us. Because if this pattern continues, we will replicate the story of ancient Israel and the posture of our nation foregoing humility in prayer and getting right with God, just blatantly saying, God bless America, and not paying attention to the discrepancies between God bless America and our lives, that posture of foregoing repentance, frankly, makes my leg wet for fear of what may yet come. The reason that we come and that we hear the word of the Lord is so that we can in turn become doers of the word. And I know, um, at least for me, I've, so often I'm, I'm a hearer only. And uh, I don't want to be. Uh, and so c- can we just pray about that together? Uh, that we would, that we, would, we would do what God is calling us to do. God, we, uh, we, we come and we echo the words that Pastor Wayne has just spoken over us. Lord, have mercy. God, forgive us. God, we pray you would open our eyes up to the things that that you want us to do, the ways that you want us to walk, the lives that you want us to touch. And God, we ask humbly, that you would heal our land and that we would put our faith and our trust in you and that you would give us the courage to boldly walk in the paths that you have laid out for us. And we pray this, trusting in the spirit of God to work within us relying on the power of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We, uh, we want to continue to worship this morning by being a people of prayer. Um, it's our habit to do that on most weeks because we, we think that our communication with God is important. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me in this room in the east and Lovington as well. And if you're watching online, we won't know if you do, but you're welcome to stand. Um, and, and we just want to give you the opportunity to pray if you would like to pray with someone this morning. So there will be some, some trusted leaders from the church in, in all of those spaces um, for you to, to partner with. And they're here to, to bring things to God on your behalf. And you're certainly welcome to come and to pray about any of the things that we have have raised today. Um, But there may be other things in your life 
or in the life of a loved one that you just you just want to say, hey, we, we need help in this in the weeks ahead. We need help and we need guidance. And so we, we invite you to come um, to pray as we continue to sing and support those prayers with our worship together. <laughs> 